Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. another log on the fire. We're in this uh, teaching series. For those of you that are guests with us today, we've been talking about not just calling on God for revival, for God to pour out His Spirit afresh, to ignite our hearts again, to make us excited, to make us bold in our faith, to see God move in our city, move in our families, to see people come to Christ and to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, people healed and delivered, and all the miraculous things that God does. But how do we sustain that? How do we keep the fire going when the fire falls? Because if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that when, when you have an encounter with the Lord, it's so exciting. It's like overwhelming. It's all you can think about for days. But over time, you kind of get used to that dynamic, and it can seem like the fire begins to dwindle a little bit. And, and, then, and then we go for a period of time. I just had in my my mind as we were leading worship, I just saw like a, a tree that was planted, an old oak tree planted, but it was beginning to wither and it only had a few leaves left on the tree. And I'm, and I'm reminded of Psalm 1 that says about the righteous that we're like trees planted by the rivers of water that will yield fruit in every season. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that should be your life. Springs of living water flowing from your heart. This is what is produced in a life filled with the Spirit, founded and grounded on Jesus Christ. But often, we kind of let things get in the way. We get disconnected, and we, rather than being a fruitful tree, look like a withering tree. So how do we sustain? How do we continue to fan in the flame? And many of you, you've already got the fans out today. You're fanning something. I think you're trying to cool it off, so I didn't plan this. It's 90 degrees in here, not because, uh, you know, we planned it, but uh, the Lord is faithful. He'll get us through, amen? If you pass out, we got people to catch you. We do that around here. People tend to fall sometimes in our services, so you're in good company. Don't be embarrassed. Just let it go. Let it happen. Have your way, Lord. Well, today we're throwing another log on the fire. Week one, we talked about the outpour of the Spirit, when the Spirit comes upon you, that fire gets lit. And then week two, we talked about the most important log in your fireplace that is the magic wood that is the foundation of everything, the very word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So God's word is foundational. And then last week, we talked about the oxygen. You know, the fires require oxygen to burn. And the oxygen that keeps the flame going uh, that continues to fan and to flame your personal relationship with God to recharge you is our, our prayer is praying to the Lord and having intimate moments with God alone, just God and us. And last week I challenged everyone here that if you don't already have dedicated time with God every day, and that not just that you pray every day, but where you get alone and you remove all the distractions. Uh, like you go into a closet, you turn off the phone, you turn off the radio, you turn off, you, you lock everybody out, and you say, for the next 15 minutes or so, it's just me and God. That if you don't have that time, I encourage and challenge you to start spending at least 15 minutes undisturbed time with God every day. Did anybody take that challenge this week? Anybody at all? 
Amen. Amen. Did it make a difference? Amen. It does, right? Because in the presence of the Lord, there's freedom. In the presence of the Lord, there's hope. There's joy. There's goodness. We, we hear his voice. We get overwhelmed by the goodness of the Lord. And so I just encourage you, if you started, keep it up. If you haven't, start. And I know that that 15 minutes will turn into 20 and then to 40 and then to an hour. And then if you pray through all the things we, we showed you in the Lord's Prayer that you can be praying for, you're going to run out of time before you run out of things to pray for. Such an awesome thing. And that's how we as the people of God can pray without ceasing. So last week, I know we made all the introverts happy. We talked about getting alone, breaking away, getting alone. And all the introverts in the room were like, yes, finally somebody validated my feelings. I don't like being around people. You know, we looked at how Jesus was always breaking away and getting alone to be with God, getting away from the people. And be like, I know Jesus and me had something in common. We, we like to break away and be by ourselves. Right? Amen. So it's so awesome. But here's the thing about Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, the glory as of this only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Somebody say grace and truth. So Jesus was God incarnate. He was manifest in the flesh as He took on flesh, born of the virgin baby, and so God is walking around us as one of us, and we've seen his glory, and he's full of grace and truth. Now, we, just as we have two kinds of people, introverts and extroverts, we also kind of have two kinds of people we can lump as grace people and truth people. Especially in the church, we, we, there's a huge dynamic, but, but there's grace people and truth people. Grace people, you can identify them because they have grace for everything. Like, you, you could hurt their feelings, you could, you, you could stomp on them, you could betray them, and, and you ask their forgiveness, and they forgive you in a second. They're actually sorry they didn't forgive you sooner, right? These are the kind of people, as parents, they're the everyone-gets-a-trophy kind of parent. You know, like, oh, we, we can't hurt anybody's feelings, so we're just going to give everybody a trophy. Everybody's a winner. Everybody's the winner. Everyone gets to participate and win. They're, they're grace people. And then you have truth people. <laughs> truth people only care about the truth. Why? Because truth doesn't care about your feelings. I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and I'm going to say because it's true, and I don't care how you feel about it. I don't care that your kid lost. Suck it up. <laughs> they're, the, they're the people that on the back of their car, it doesn't say, my kid's an honor roll student. They're the ones that say, my kid beat up your honor roll student. You know what I'm saying? There's truth, people. Like, it doesn't matter how you feel. What is true is just true. So we have all kinds of people, introverts, extroverts, all different personalities, optimists, pessimists, realists. We have truth and grace. But no matter where we fall, we all have to work on improving where we're weak. We have to improve. Why? Because... None of us have arrived to the standard and glory of God, and Jesus is that standard. Jesus wasn't just gracious, which is how we treat him sometimes. Doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter how I live, the Lord forgives me. But he's not just full of grace, he's also full of truth, which means he doesn't bend the standard. 
Jesus is the only one that can be perfectly loving and tell you the truth at the same time. You know, we're told in the New Testament, preach the truth in love. He's the only one that does that perfectly. Because we bend one way or the other. We're either too gracious and we ignore the truth, sweep it under the rug, or we're all truth and we ignore feelings and we hurt and offend people. So we have to work on where we're weak. We have to continually seek to strive to improve, to overcome our weaknesses. But what we see in Jesus is that he's both equally gracious and truthful simultaneously. And so last week as we encouraged the introverts and they were happy as we saw Jesus breaking away, always breaking away to be alone and, you know, all the introverts were like, amen, amen. This week, we flipped the script. This week, we flipped the script because even though he always was getting alone to pray in Luke 4, 16, it says, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his Custom. Somebody say, as was his custom. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Mark chapter 10, verse 1 says, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and the what? And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, what's that say? As was his custom, he taught them. So not only did Jesus get alone often to pray, to be alone with the Lord, but it was also his custom to go to where people were to be among them, to minister to them, to serve them. Something is not a custom unless you did it quite often. The word customary means usual practice. So was it his usual practice to be a spiritual introvert and be alone with the Lord? Yes. But it was also his practice to be a spiritual extrovert and be among people to connect with them. If you think about Jesus' posse, you know Jesus had a posse. He had, a, he had his group. He had his gang. He had three that were his inner circle, you know, Peter, James, and John. But he also had 12 disciples and a group of women that followed him everywhere. And then he appointed 72. And then by the time he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 2, there was 120. He wasn't alone often, which is why he was always breaking away to get alone. He was always among the people. So this week, we're going to channel our spiritual extroverts. Why? Because there's a huge misnomer in the body of Christ and even the way people think among Christians today that they believe following Jesus is a solo sport. That following Jesus is just something that I can do on my own. Oh, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to meet with other people. My church is in the woods. My church is when I'm alone. My church is in my living room in front of my television. Oh, I listen to this speaker. I listen to this speaker. And that's, that's church enough for me. Well, beloved, Jesus called us fishers of men. How can you fish for men if you don't go where the men are? In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, the writer of Hebrews says this. This is the King James Version. He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Somebody say, not forsaking. That means don't do it. I know English can be hard to understand sometimes for all of us English speakers. But not forsaking means don't neglect. Don't forsake. Don't reject what? The assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Did you know there's the manner of some is to reject or neglect the meeting together of the body of Christ? It's to reject it. So he's saying don't forsake it, don't neglect it, but what? Exhort one another, encourage one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the writer of Hebrews here in this passage, he says that we need to hold fast the profession of our faith. What is that profession? It's confessing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Hold fast to what you believe. Hold fast to what you've been taught. But he doesn't stop there because in our holding fast to what you believe, he switches from an individualized faith to a corporate faith, pushing you to see that that faith is then lived out amongst your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. The part of the faith we possess is just all about, isn't, isn't just all about you. The part of the faith we profess is a faith that requires us to interact with other believers. An individual faith must be lived out corporately in the family of faith. How do you provoke unto love and good works if you're not around others to provoke? Again, I know there are people that have a thing against organized religion. They don't like the idea of the church. But beloved, Jesus and the church go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. You see, the church isn't just his body. It's also his bride. It's his bride. See, my wife and I, we're individuals. But by nature of our marriage, we're one flesh. We're one. What affects me affects my bride, and what affects my bride affects me. Like, you think you can bash me and be on my wife's good side? You got another thing coming. You think you can bash my bride and not have me break your nose? <laughs> you have another thing coming. We were ministering at a church one time, and uh, we were worship leaders, and uh, we had just experienced our first and only miscarriage. And I just want to brag on my wife a little bit, because she's one of the toughest ladies I know. When we were pregnant with our first daughter, Jocelyn, we were set to have our, to be induced three days or so before church. It was like a Wednesday or Thursday, I think, if I remember right. But it was within that week. It was just a couple days later, church was happening, and that was baby dedication Sunday. We also, it was awesome how God worked it out because another lady that we were friends with in our church was having a child at the same time. And so they were in, uh, ended up getting to share a room, which was pretty cool. But baby dedication Sunday was next Sunday. Now, the average woman, when she has birth, doesn't come to church for a few weeks. My wife was in church two days later 
dedicating her daughter to the Lord. Before we were even on staff, every pregnancy we had, we were serving at some capacity. She never skipped church more than six weeks after having a child. After six weeks, she was in, she was serving, our kids were in the nursery. I'm telling you, she's tough as nails. She doesn't quit, she doesn't give up. Jesus is number one, and she has sacrificed her whole life to serve him. So this night, we had just had a miscarriage recently. It was very fresh. We're at praise band practice, and she's there serving the Lord, trying to hold it all together, barely hanging by a thread. We're going through our practice, and she and I had a disagreement about something small. It wasn't a big deal, but it was enough to push her over the edge where she couldn't stay and keep it together. So she dismissed herself, and she left. After worship practice, the entire worship team and the sound guy met me outside after church and proceeded to tell me how disrespectful and how out of line my wife was for leaving church early. As if I was going to join in and agree with them. They had something else coming. Something else coming. When you talk about my wife, you're talking about me. And when you're talking about me, you're talking about my wife. You can't say, I love Jesus and hate his church. You can't do it. What do you think Jesus thinks when you're trashing his church? But you're praising him? Who do you think you are? What's in your head? Are you insane? Are you crazy? You can't do it. It doesn't work. Why? Because he bled and died for his church. And he's washing her with the water of the word. That she'd be without spot, without wrinkle. Everything he does is to sacrifice for his church so that one day when he comes, she'll be prepared and they'll be together forever for all eternity. You think you can talk bad about his church? You think you can do without his church? What people don't understand is when you say something about the church, you're talking about the one who's married to the church. And he takes it personal. What people don't understand is that this is not about having a community organization. This is about forming a spiritual community that looks like a family. It's not about building bu buildings and having a name and having the largest congregation and who's the coolest and who has the best music and who dresses the best and all this garbage that America has turned the church into. It's not about that. It's about a family. It's about a family that's united together in our most holy faith, the confession of our faith. See, the fourth log we need to throw in the fire that's vitally necessary. It's a vitally necessary element for our spiritual lives that keeps the flame of revival burning is the element of fellowship. It's fellowship. 
It's fellowship. And there's several words used in the Old and New Testaments that are translated as fellowship. And I think by the way we use this word, we kind of miss the point of what Scripture is teaching us about what the fellowship of the faith or the believers is supposed to be like. In the Old Testament, Enoch and Noah were said to have close fellowship with God. They translated that in English as they walked with God. So when we use the word fellowship in that sense, it's like a close personal relationship with the Lord. In the Psalms also, it, uh, in Psalm 55, I believe, it insinuates an intimate conversation, reinforcing an individualized faith that when I have fellowship, I have fellowship with God because we have a close personal relationship. In the New Testament, we get varied definitions um, that refer to fellowship. In 2 Peter 2.13, he uses the word fellowship to describe eating together, feasting together. And that's a very common way we use this in the New Testament church. When we talk about an activity or something we're doing to hang out together, what do we say? We say, we're going to have a good time of fellowship. And what are we saying? We're just going to get together and hang out and have fun. So it's like this idea of what fellowship is supposed to be by the way we use the word. But there's a more comprehensive way this word is used in Acts chapter 2. Again, we're talking about the pouring out of the Spirit. The Spirit has fallen on the body of Christ. They're filled. The gifts are manifesting. You're speaking in tongues. They go from 120 to, to 3,120 believers in a single day. So awesome. God's performing signs, wonders, and miracles. The apostles are healing. But what do they do? Immediately when this happens, what do they do? In Acts 2, Beginning in verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributed in proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So when the New Testament's talking about fellowship, it's not talking about just having a get-together after a church service for a couple hours. There's something more, something deeper. We see many aspects of fellowship in this group. And what, what did the individuals in the group do when they received Christ and they were filled with the Spirit? They came together for fellowship. And that word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia means communion or joint participation, a share which one has in anything, or intimate togetherness. There's an intimacy that is fueling their community. So right after the Spirit's poured out, these believers don't go off by themselves and have an individualized faith in the quietness of their own home or out in the woods or, or on their way to work, whatever it is, they, they come up with an idea as an excuse not to gather together. But the first thing they do is they form a family. They form a community. And, and what do they do? They study together. They learn God's word together. They ate together. They, they did the Lord's Supper together. They learned together. They formed intimate relationships. How do you know? Because they knew what the needs were, and they sold their stuff to help meet the needs. They were generous. 
Right? They were invested in one another. They got together with intentionality, and not just once every once in a while or once a month. It says, and day to day. They went to the temple. Why? To worship God. They met in their homes. It means they opened their doors. They prepared for people to come to get to know each other, to encourage each other, to strengthen each other, to bear each other's burdens, lift each other's souls. They were kind and generous towards one another. And this type of community was so attractive in that culture. It says, and day to day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Do you realize if we just loved each other the way Jesus said, we wouldn't have to go out into the world. The world would come into us. It's fellowship. You know, beloved, Jesus said he was going to build his church. The word church in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia, which means an assembly. What's an assembly? A gathering of people. It's a gathering. So no, he didn't come to build autonomous islands of disconnected personalities. He came to build a people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood that would serve each other and serve with each other. And through their love and the preaching of the gospel, they'd change the world. That's God's will. That's what Jesus came to do, and to do it through the church. But again, people think they don't need it, that they can be all that they need to be on their own without the church. Well, I want to show you a clip from an old movie that I think illustrates this point, and after it, we'll, we'll say a few things. Hope you enjoy I am Arthur, King of the Britons. I seek the finest and the bravest knights in the land to join me in my court at Camelot. You have proved yourself worthy. Will you join me? You make me sad. So be it. Come, Patsy. None shall pass. What? None shall pass. I have no quarrel with you, good Sir Knight, but I must cross this bridge. Then you shall die. I command you, as King of the Britons, to stand aside. I move for no man. So be it. <laughs> <laughs> Stand aside, worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Well, what's that, then? I've heard worse. You liar! Come on, you pansy! <laughs> 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 
thee, Lord, that in thy mouth... Come on, then. What? Have at you! You are indeed brave tonight, but the fight is mine. Oh, and enough, eh? Look, you've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look! Just a flesh wound. Look, stop that! Chicken! Chicken! Look, I'll have your leg. Right! Right, I'll do you for that. You what? Come here! What are you gonna do, bleed on me? I'm invincible! You're a loony. The Black Knight always triumphs! How about you? Come on, then. All right, we'll call it a draw. Come, Patsy. Oh, oh, I see. Running away, eh? You yellow! Come back here and take what's coming to you! I'll bite your legs off! I love that scene. His arms on the floor, and he's like, your arms off. And he's like, it's only a flesh wound. Now, why did I show that clip? Well, beloved, Paul the Apostle, over and over again, refers to us as a body. The body of Jesus Christ. We're all individual members of his body. Now, when the Black Knight was whole, he was pretty menacing. He was pretty intimidating. When he was intact, he looked fearsome. But what happened when he got his arm chopped off? He wasn't very threatening, let alone when he got both of his arms chopped off. And even though he kept kicking and screaming, like he was in the fight, he was still trying to keep it going, he wasn't going to get anywhere because he didn't have what he needed to win the battle. He was still in the battle, but he was not near as effective, and his arms were laying on the ground, not doing him a bit of good. Nor were they able to fulfill their purpose because they were no longer attached to the body, but yet they were quickly decaying. I love how this knight was also in denial. Every time he lost a ligament, and even at the end when he was cut in half, he still thought he was good enough to fight. He still thought he had a chance. And this is how many believers are trying to live this Christian life. It's like trying to fight a battle without any limbs. We're in a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the unseen world. We have opposition at every turn. If you are missing what you need to be successful you're not going to be very successful. And actually, less than the knight himself, we're more like the dismembered ligament because we're all a part of the body. We're not the body. And when you're disconnected, when you're severed from the body, you're more like the dying limb. You're not really useful for much. And you are actually slowly dying. But yet the king is intact. The king was strong. The king was powerful. And he was powerful enough to slay the opposition and win the day. Just like our king. 
has risen with all authority and power. And he has never lost a battle. Because he's not divided. You see, if you're a member of the body of Christ, the body of the king, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against us. If we're united, if we're together, that the church is more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. But if you're a member of the body and you're not connected to the body, you're cut off from the blood flow in the body for what you need to be victorious, your spiritual life will suffer greatly. This is why the writer of Hebrews says to encourage each other to love and good works, to encourage each other as we're connected to one another, we encourage each other to keep fulfilling the purpose God has for us as his children and as members of the body of Christ. And I would even say that even if you come to services every Sunday, you never miss a Sunday. You can still come and be disconnected. Because you can sit by yourself and come and go without really having any interaction with anyone else. You can be in the church, but not connected to the church at the same time. Now, you might be encouraged by the ministry on the platform, the songs that are sung, the messages that are taught, the the prayers that are prayed and the sense of the spirit in the room might, might encourage you, but there's still so much you're missing out on that you can't even experience without being in close fellowship with other believers. There's a common phrase that, that's connected to the commands of Jesus to the church, instructions that he's given us, things that the apostles left for us to do to be aware of, and there's a phrase that's called one another. And it's derived from different Greek words in the New Testament, but it could mean one another or each other or mutually or reciprocally. They all kind of have the same nuance and, and description of their definition. The phrase one another occurs approximately 100 times in the New Testament. And approximately 59 of those occurrences are specific to commands teaching us how to or how not to interact or connect with one another. And I'm just going to read some of the commands of what we've been told to do for one another. We're to love one another. That was at least 16 times in the New Testament. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above ourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Consider others better than yourself. Look to the interest of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts that God's given us for the benefit of one another. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another and confess your faults to one another. Much of the Christian life, living this Christian life requires us to be around others. You can't be 
around just yourself. You can't one another, one another, without being around one another. Like, duh. I've recently brought that back to our household. Uh, that was cool, like, several years ago. The kids ask a question, and it's, like, quite obvious. I'm like, yeah, duh. I mean, come on. But when you read the scripture over and over and over again, one another, one another, one another, it's just assuming you're going to be around one another. You can't be everything Jesus created you to be, that he saved you to be, if you forsake or neglect the assembling of yourself. If you neglect the intentional gathering of the believers of Jesus Christ, our most holy faith, for the sole purpose of building up and in strengthening one another, that allows you to sow into other people's lives and for them to sow into your life. If you can't do that, you can't be there to minister to them. They can't minister to you if you're not around them and intentionally gathering with them to do that. Koinonia, this fellowship that Jesus wants for us, it requires some vulnerability, some transparency, and you can't be a spiritual hermit and do it. You can't. You have to risk. You have to risk being exposed to other people's junk that you might not really want to be exposed to, and you have to be willing to expose your own. You have to pursue friendship and relationship. I mean, imagine, how are you going to have a best friend if you never talk to him and never hang out with him? Huh, I'll see you in 10 years. Okay, great friendship. Like, how, how do you do that? You can't. So you can be an acquaintance of the church, but it takes koinonia to be connected to the church. And many believers in our day, and especially in our nation, we want to be acquaintances of the church because being in koinonia is too uncomfortable. It requires too much. But beloved, that's what Jesus wants. In 1 John chapter 1, John writes this in verse 5. He says, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. Somebody say no darkness. No darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him, Jesus, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. Now, when we hear that verse, we think of darkness, and we simply just think of sin or wickedness. But this word has a deeper meaning. The word darkness can be simply translated an ignorance of respecting divine things. An ignorance of respecting divine things like commands to one another one another because look at what he says next if we walk in the light 
as he is in the light, we have what? With one another. If we say we have fellowship with him, but we walk ignorantly of divine things, we lie. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. There's benefit. There's blessing. When we walk in fellowship with the Lord, it's lived out by walking in fellowship with one another. You will be in spiritual community. Why? Because people who love Jesus love people who love Jesus. You just do. Because you're part of the bride. You're part of the body. And there is something that unites the body of Christ together that is a bond that's not easily broken. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, this is, this is a mystery of the fellowship of the believer that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 13, verse 14, he says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship, the Koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've been talking about the fellowship of one another, but there's also a fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There is an intimacy, a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God that is also available. He's praying, may this intimacy with the Holy Spirit be with all of you. If I have to pray that, that means it's not necessarily being experienced with all of you. So may it be, may the fellowship of the Spirit be with all of you. How do we experience the fellowship or the fullness of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's lived out in fellowship with one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, is we're talking about being the body of Christ. We're here to build each other up, strengthen each other. Paul says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient. Make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. There is a unity, there is a binding in the Spirit that binds us together because of our most holy faith. There is a fellowship in the Spirit of God that comes to those who are in fellowship with the body of Christ. He says, for there's one body, one spirit, just as you've been called, the one glorious hope for the future, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and living through all. However, he's given to each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. So yes, there's one Lord, there's one faith, but in this fellowship of the Spirit, the uniting that we have, we can experience that fellowship, how? Through the gifts that Christ has given us. So make every effort to be united in the Spirit. 
to live out this great calling we have in Christ, the calling of love, and use the gift that you've been given to show that love in the body of Christ. And I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 as he peels back the layers of this mystery to reveal the way the Spirit unites us in fellowship. And we're just going to read through this. We're going to break it down. But I want to show you the importance of the fellowship, not just that we have relationship together, but through our relationship together, we experience deeper fellowship and intimacy with God Almighty. In Romans chapter 12, beginning of verse 3, it says, For by grace. Somebody say grace. For by grace. We talk about grace a lot. Grace simply rendered benefit. It can be defined as a benefit or the character of a benefit or the disposition of graciousness by the benefactor. It could also simply mean divine favor. Divine favor. God's favor on your life. So what Paul's about to say, he's setting this up by saying it's by the favor of God. What is? The favor of God given to me, I say, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So to everyone among you, but to think with sober judgment. He's saying, by the grace and favor on my life, let me encourage you. Don't think of yourself as better than what you are. But think with a sober mind, sober judgment. This means according to truth. Be a spiritual realist. Have an honest evaluation of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself, but also, beloved, don't think too lowly of yourself. That's equally as damaging. Be real. Have an honest assessment with where you are. To everyone among you, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith. Now somebody say measure of faith. The measure of faith God has assigned. Now this is where people who think too lowly of themselves get offended. Because if I were to say, you need to grow in your faith, the offended heart says, what, you think you have something I don't? You think that you're more spiritual than me? Yeah. In this area. But according to sober judgment, you're stronger than me in this area. That's not an offense. But the offended heart says, what do you mean? You have something more than me. According to the word of God, and by the grace he bestows, he has given each of us a measure of faith as an assignment from God. Your measure of faith may not be the same as my measure of faith. And vice versa. You have been given a measure of faith. Now we know scripturally faith can grow. But we're not all spiritual giants the moment we get saved. Sometimes you got to go through some stuff to be stretched, to be built up. So we each have a different measure of faith. We need to be realistic in analyzing the level of faith that we have. There might be a purpose in that. You think because Jesus put this in the Bible that there might be a reason why he's saying this? I just, I don't know why he puts stuff in here sometimes. I'm just reading it and I'm like, I don't know. 
what was that for? I don't get it. I mean, you could have done without that, you know. Here's what he says. For as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So it just might be you need different levels of faith for different functions. My pinky toe doesn't need to lift 60-pound dumbbells. My bicep can't do that either, but I'm working on it. There's some things, some parts of the body need to do, and some things, some parts of the body don't need to do. So we've been given different measures of faith because we occupy a different function. Verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. We're individually members one of another. So we're all in the body, but we're a different part of the body. So there is a different measure of faith we've been given so that we can fulfill the function that God has placed us in in the body. Verse 6, having gifts. Somebody say gifts. Having gifts. This word gifts is the word charisma. This is the favor or the grace that you've received without any merit of your own. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't win a medal and, and receive it. This is an act of God's favor on your life. You received a gift of divine grace. So you have a measure of faith according to the place you occupy, and what you've received because of that place is a gift of divine favor to be used according to the measure of your faith. We don't all have the same function. We also don't all have the same gifts. Those are determined by the grace given to you and the measure of faith given to you. And the strength of your gift is determined by that measure of faith you've received. And again, your faith can grow, your gifts can grow, and they should grow. Anything living grows. But we've been given what we've been given by Christ because he has a purpose in it. That doesn't come by chance. It comes by purpose. And how do we know? Because he says next, let us use them. We have different faith. We have different gifts. But let us use them. If you want your gift to grow, you want your faith to grow, you have to use it. It's that simple. You want to be a generous giver? You want to be a crazy, generous faith giver, then you have to start giving in crazy, generous ways. You want to lay your hands on the sick and see people healed? You have to start laying your hands on the sick. You want to prophesy? You have to start walking in pursuit of the gift of prophecy. You want to grow as a person of prayer? You have to exercise the gift as it has been given to you with the measure of faith that you've been given. And Paul's about to give us some examples of these gifts. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, 
if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The level to which we can walk in our gifting is determined by the grace that we have in our lives and the measure of faith we hold, but these gifts are not meant to be kept to ourselves. If God's given you a prophetic gift, what good is it if there's no one to prophesy to? If God has given you a gift to serve, what good is it if you're not around people to serve? If God's given you a gift to teach, what good is it if there's no one to teach or to exhort? What, what good is it if you just look in the mirror every morning and say nice things? You're going to feel good, but what about other people? Who are you going to be generous to if you never give? Who are you going to lead if you never step out? Who are you going to be merciful to if you don't have the relationships that require you to extend mercy? You see, grace is giving you something you don't deserve. Mercy is withholding something you do deserve. Which means you have to be in a place to be offended, to be hurt, to be wounded before you can extend mercy to other people. How are you going to be merciful? if you're not involved in relationships that will require mercy. He says in verse 11, do not be slothful. Rather, let's look at verse 9. Love, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit or the Holy Spirit and serve the Lord. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Uh, other endings or renderings of this passage could also be translated as, or serve the Lord with a zealous spirit, or let the Spirit excite you as you serve the Lord. In verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. He starts out this passage by saying, be honest in your evaluation. Don't think of yourself highly as you ought to think. Don't be comparing yourself to other people. But I love here what he says is that there's one thing, there's one exception to competing and comparing with one another. It's not in your spiritual gifts. It's not in how crazy your faith is or how strong it is. There's one thing that we can do to try to outdo one another, and that is showing one another honor, building each other up, putting each other on a platform and everyone else on a pedestal. He, he, I just love that because so often in the church, we make our gifts about us. We make, like, how many people did I get to pray for? How many people did I get to prophesy to? And we don't really celebrate one another very well. Because we're living individualized faith. But here he's saying, be zealous to build each other up. Honor one another. It doesn't matter if you have more faith or less, stronger or weaker gifts. Part of having fellowship with the Holy Spirit is building true fellowship with one another, using our gifts as God has given them so that each of us can fulfill the part that he's put us in the body 
and that true fellowship with one another will make a way for us to put one another on a platform to exalt each other, to celebrate one another, to encourage each other, to keep going, keep growing, keep following Jesus, keep, keep, keep the path, keep the fire going, fan that thing into flame, watch it get set on fire. Is what he's saying. Don't be slothful in zeal. Zeal means to have great energy or enthusiasm. When you look at your spiritual life, do you see zeal? Are you going after the things of God? Are you pursuing the things of God? Are you pursuing koinonia, fellowship? Or are you running like the hills? Are you using your prayer closet as an excuse to avoid the fellowship of believers or are you seeing the value in both being a spiritual introvert and an extrovert coming together in the fullness of what God has called us to be see there's no zeal in a person that neglects the assembly of believers or who forsakes the fellowship of believers but those who are in fellowship will have great zeal why? Because not only do they have fellowship with one another, but they experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who's our comforter, our leader, our guide, our teacher. And there's nothing like experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit together. This is why I believe small groups are so important. That's why I believe prayer night is so important. I believe we should be getting together more often that rather than finding ways to stay separate. And I just believe because we're the body, Jesus is the cornerstone, that if we can capture a vision for true spiritual community, heartfelt, loving community, it's going to catapult our spiritual lives. It's going to catapult our faith. And it's going to catapult this ministry because those on the outside will see something on the inside they want to be a part of. They don't just want to be included in the group. They want to have the fellowship. They want to experience the spirit. The fellowship of spirit-filled believers. So my challenge for you today, beloved, is don't forsake the assembly of yourself. Don't forsake fellowship but go after it with zeal. Go after. Spend time with the Lord, building your personal relationship. But beloved, there are things the Spirit wants to do among us together that we're never going to experience when we're alone. And I believe, I'm just crazy enough to believe God wants to do some things today. That the Spirit doesn't want us just to gather for a religious service, but that He wants to touch somebody. He wants to encourage somebody. And part of being the church is using our gifts to encourage one another. And so as we begin to close, I'm going to invite our prayer team and our prophetic team to come forward. And we're going to go into a time of response. And we'll have some music playing. You can worship, use the gift of worship. But if there's a need in your heart, in your life, you can come forward. We have folks ready to pray. We have folks ready to prophesy. If you want to 
have a moment with God, come and receive a word from the Lord. There's nothing like hearing from the heart of God something directly that will hit your heart. If you're sick and you need healing, come. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. You've never given God your heart and life. What better way to begin fellowship with the Lord than to begin by giving Jesus your life? Let's bow for prayer. And as the team begins to sing, you respond. And maybe you just need to come and you just need to come and dedicate yourself to the Lord, to pursuing fellowship. Ask God to forgive you for neglecting the church, neglecting his body, and to recommit yourself to giving your all to the King of Kings. Lord God, I just thank you today. I thank you for the encouragement of your word. God, I thank you that you've given us each a measure of faith, that wherever I'm weak, I have a brother or sister in the room who's strong. Where I need encouragement, you have an encouraging word ready to go on the lips of a faith-filled, spirit-filled believer. God, I thank you for the prayer warriors in this room. I thank you for those with crazy faith. I thank you for those with crazy generosity. I thank you for the spiritual introverts that teach the extroverts how to get along with the Lord. And I thank you for the spiritual extroverts that are showing the introverts that it's okay and safe to be around other people. Because there's the presence of the Lord. Where two or more are gathered, you're right there. I thank you, God, for the fellowship of the faith you're building here. The love that's in this room. The presence of your spirit. And Holy Spirit, I just say right now, Lord, have your way. Begin to speak. Begin to move. Begin to call people out. God, for those that are battling fear and anxiety and worry, God, I know what that's like. I know how heavy a burden that is, God. I just pray a lifting in Jesus' name. And I pray, God, that your mercy would fall on us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. If you need prayer, something on your heart, I encourage you to come. You come. And let the body of Christ, let the church use their gifts to encourage you and strengthen you. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.